Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, the five books of The Breakfast Club continues with Ali Sheedy's character, Allison, who's ignored. Avram asks if we can really trust only the viewpoint of a child in working out solutions. And I'm asking if it actually might be a good thing to ignore your kids. We also delve into remembering our parents were also people and how we see parenting these days as a verb rather than a noun. Here we go. I have problems. You do everything everybody ever tells you to do. That is a problem. Okay, fine. But I didn't dump my purse out on the couch and invite people into my problems. Did I? So what's wrong? What is it? Is it bad? Real bad? Yeah. What did they do to you? Okay. Good morning, Avram. Good morning, Ellie. <laughs> we are continuing our foray into, um, I feel like this is the five books of Moses, but it's the five characters of the Breakfast Club. <laughs> right. We're now who's, on for Allison. <laughs> which I was going to ask you, which, which character is most, uh, most resembles Brigitte? <laughs> Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I think like, I feel like Bender is 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 the beret sheet of the crew. I was gonna, you know it, what? It, it has to be right. Right. That, like that would, that would be my choice. He's yeah. like the genesis. Like he's the chaos, and you know, the kind of so. But weirdly enough, we I think we'll probably get to him last. <laughs> All right. Fine. Deal. All right. So, um, Allison, we are talking today about Ali Sheedy's character, Allison. She, um, uh, you know, for those who aren't on the podcast, you can see her behind me on my background here. Um, she's kind of like the pre-goth character. Um, you know, she's the one that gets out of the car at the beginning and is completely ignored. They just sort of drive off before she can say hello. And she really is this kind of strange creature-like character until probably like two thirds of the way through the film, you almost never hear her speak. 
um, but she's funny, she's weird. Um, and everyone there is kind of like weirdly like fascinated and at the same time, like, you know, not sure what to do with her. Um, yeah, so that would be my kind of intro into Allison. Did, did I miss anything? What would you add? Well, the only thing I would add is that she she pulls off a war, uh, Warholian, Warholian um, move with her at Dandruff, which I think is the first <laughs> time in a movie I've ever seen. I don't even think I've ever seen anyone do that in real life. I mean, John Hughes would have would have had to thought that one up himself. So either he knew someone in high school who used their dandruff as snowflakes, but uh, I would have never in a million years imagined uh, <laughs> that, that was some arts so and that, crafts mastery right there. <laughs> that was um, using your body to produce art, which was uh, yeah, very uh, very unique um, and creative for Allison. <laughs> It and actually gross. would be great I mean, to, to be know, like if there were ever liner notes or something that said like how, what parts of the movie were improvised or just sort of thought up in the moment, it would be really funny to, because that I can totally see would be something that would just, like she just did that as a weird quirky thing and it was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. Well, you know, what's interesting actually, but what you're touching on here is the uh, the real people in real life and how they, their careers went. So Ali Sheedy actually, she, there is something about her throughout her entire career that picked indie films. She seemed to always fly under the radar. She didn't, you know, she, I don't think she ever became, uh, and probably it sounds like on purpose that she she chose to live, um, one could say more of an, uh, an alternative artistic life as an actor. Um, and so I do wonder, it's a good point. I wonder how much um, creative license Hughes gave to each of the characters. Mm. Um, I know that Brian and, um, uh, what is Molly Ringwald's? What's her name? What's her name in the film? Oh, um, character? Claire. Claire, Claire. I know they were teenagers at the time. Uh, Molly Ringwald was in high school when The Breakfast Club was being filmed. Brian also, um, uh, Michael Anthony Hall was in high school. Um, Judd Nelson was 24, maybe. Um, yeah, I remember I he was, was, I think, the oldest of them. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just thinking about Ali Sheedy and how she's lived her life, I do wonder if Hugh said to her, you know, um, improvise. I got to look okay. that up. That's actually interesting. I bet you someone has touched on the dandruff scene. I wonder who came. I wonder whose idea that was. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. Watch, now we it, have it to... was the janitor. It was the guy who played the janitor. It was his idea. <laughs> He's like the wise elder of that whole film, truthfully. Right. <laughs> Which is, by the way, um, which is true. He is the, no, no, it's actually it's funny you said that. He is the Yoda sort of character of yeah. this film. Right, he, you know, uh, I would agree with you. Yeah, he, he plays that, um, that, it, that gesture in passing that Shakespeare sometimes employs, right? Where you wouldn't necessarily take him seriously, but he's really the only one that's speaking the truth. Right. Um, I just want <clears throat> to point out here, uh, you know, you and I spoke um, before this episode and uh, um, uh, I'm going to do this publicly. So now you're, there's some accountability here. Uh, Ellie has a <laughs> photo of herself that, uh, that I think she has to post where she pulls off a pretty damn good Al Allison when she was uh, the same age, probably, that uh, yeah. Al Allison was in the Breakfast Club. So yeah. I, I think that's... Um, that, that that's important to post. Um, and the, the other thing is, you know, the, the angle. I think that whenever we do these podcasts, Ellie, I, I try to think of um, an angle that would be relevant to parents um, and family. And the angle that I want to touch on today, I know you have one that you want to, the angle that I want to touch on today is 
um, you know, what, what is going on behind uh, the feeling when a teenager feels their parent is ignoring them? Mm. Uh, because it's a, it, it's a pretty common expression. When I used to work with teens one-on-one -on -one in Vancouver, they, they would say some version of, um, you know, I know my parents love me, but they don't know me or they don't care about what, you know, who I am. Um, I used to believe that. I no longer believe that. I think it's more complex. And so I'd like to touch on that theme throughout the talk today about uh, what, what leads to the feeling that your parent um, ignores you or doesn't care about you. Uh, and I think, I, think it's, I think it's important just to, to put forward this idea here that, I mean, John Hughes, like all filmmakers, uh, they have a, an angle. They have, they have something they're trying to say. And I think he's trying to say that in this instance, I think he wants the audience to feel that Allison's parents, it's a lack of love or something. That there's something wrong with these parents um, and that she is a victim of their um, neglect. I think it's the only way I would understand the opening scene because it really hits you in the gut. I, I don't know. What it, when you see that scene, Ellie, when the car drives away, when she goes in for the kiss. Oh, yeah. What, it what, kills you because you can all, you think, first of all, as a parent with your own kids, like what that would feel like for them. Um, and then, you know, remembering as a teenager that on one hand, consistently telling your parents to get out of your room and get out of your life. And on the other hand, but really wanting them to be there when you need them. And this constant sort of push-pull. So when I come to you, you have to be there and have to listen to me and you, you, know, you have to respond. Um, but when I tell you to go away, you should go away. So I think there's like always this weird push-pull. But yeah, when you see that part at the beginning where she goes to lean in and say bye and they just drive off, you're like, oh, like what happened there? How could that be? So I would like to, is there anywhere you want to specifically go? Because I have two little vignettes I want to share with you. But I mean, uh, if you if you have something where you want to open this up, if, a direction you want to go, um, we can start there. I think, you know, I, I mentioned to you that for me, I remember you doing um, a few different parenting talks. And, and one of the things I always found fascinating when you speak about generational anxiety was this idea that often it's the kid that that isn't focused on in the family where the outcomes are better so even though that kid might come out of that situation saying yeah everybody just you know focused on my sister or my brother all the time i basically was ignored they tend to come out less anxious and so is ignoring your kid really a bad thing <laughs> um you know and what does that mean um and you know where's the positives in that and then where does it cross over into like neglect um, yeah so that's what i you know i think i want to kind of sort that out also but let's go let's go with your notes and and let's go and see how we get there well i just want to come back to something you said because th this this is a sort of bmi bonnet about parenting expert talks so whatever you know what parents want often is they want a tactic they right. want they want something that they can do tomorrow at three o'clock to lessen the pain, to uh, you know, fill in the blank, make their kids stop doing drugs, uh, increase their marks, um, lower the yelling, stop the fighting between siblings. So they're looking for something specific. And when therapists get anxious, and I am prone to getting anxious, when my clients, I see they're in pain and they want something from me, I can get caught in that and give them a tactic. Here's the problem, and it's a serious one. 
The problem is that one thing can look like one thing and then very quickly it could be a different thing. Let's right. take let's take something real simple. Let's take um, meditation. So meditation can be a wonderful exercise for self-regulation, um, a very a very good tactic, especially over time if one practices mindfulness meditation, to center yourself and, and learn how to regulate your anxiety and, and be with whatever it is and not lose your mind. And so I think that's something that, that gets cultivated over time. Meditation can also be used as a way of avoidance. It can be a use of a way of avoiding, um, you know, that you, you, you're constantly going back to ashrams and studying and reading, and, and, but you're not really focusing on your life goals or your relationships. And in fact, many, uh, many people I hung out with in Vancouver from the East Coast spent all their time in Vancouver running, you know, to different gurus, but they, with, after 15 years of doing this work, they still had trouble going home. Um, right, like sometimes the spiritual path can be going in the wrong direction. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think it's very important when we, when you know, when you pose this idea of um, uh, a tactic of ignoring, mm. right? The tactic of ignoring, or what I would like to say, not focusing on. Uh, same thing, by the way, more or less, but it's it's not. And so we have to be careful with tactics when we talk about. Uh, what Marie Bowen observed, uh, Dr. Marie Bowen, uh, the founder of Family Systems Therapy, when he observed that children who were focused on positive or negative, and this is what's important, it's not just negative, it's the positive stuff too. For example, right. the eldest, the eldest son who got the name of the grandfather who died in Europe and was a great man, and even in utero, this child was going to be Right. The replacement figure, the prodigal, this, the prodigal, the prodigal son. son. Right. Even positive, anxious focus suggests that this kid is could have could have problems in life, not knowing who they are because they are all caught up with someone else's projection. Okay. In the exact same opposite way, a child who is getting constantly ragged on or focused on negatively or being schlepped the therapist, the therapist, the therapist, the therapist, will also have. Um, uh, challenges with that kind of focus. It seems to be that any sort of focus anxiety. However, the idea that if the answer then is the tactic is just to ignore my kids, <laughs> right? That's almost the opposite of an anxious focus. So what I'm yeah. saying is you can meditate anxiously or you can meditate on principle with a life goal of becoming more centered. You could adopt a position of focusing more on yourself as a parent and understanding your anxious contribution to whatever is exacerbating the situation in your family. Or you could ignore your kids to a fault, okay? Because you don't wanna get in their way at all, right? right? Um, and then your child is left to their own uh, inner resources and, and online uh, forums and, and right. peers. Um, right. So I think ignoring as a tactic is a problem. I think what we need to talk about today, because you are touching on something very important. I think if we're gonna talk about this, we need to understand what is, one could say, more emotionally mature parenting and what does more anxious parenting look like? And anxious parenting can take the form of withdrawal or it could take the form of focus. So it's important because I think if anyone walks away with this, with the idea that right. if we just, you know, uh, stop talking to our kids and just let them go in the wild. Just go, be free, you know? Um, just I let think, them out like the dog and see them in a few hours. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I think it has its own set of problems. But um, 
Uh, okay, so we, we can we can come back we can come back to this, but um, I well, think let that's... me. I wanted to just sort of throw something in because I think about this a lot, and in, in terms of how you talk about parenting, and just in terms of the word parenting in general, which I feel was a reactive word to the 1950s. Children should be seen and not heard. Like up to a certain point, you know, ignoring your children was actually exactly what you were supposed to be doing. Like you feed them, you clothe them, you send them to school, you make sure that they're still breathing. And that's really, that was about the, you know, strata of what that looked like. When parenting became a verb rather than a noun, like I am a parent, but it's now parenting. Um, it, it's like parenting became more anxious. Like there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it which is like, you know, a very sort of new idea in the, in I think the history of us as a species. So, and, and in the way that we think about it, that we need to be psychologically informed and prepared, that we have to, you know, try to potentialize our children, you know, all of these types of ways of thinking about being a parent suddenly became so pressured and so much about, it's up to me to make sure that my kid is going to be a successful human being and adult. And it's all on me as a parent. And if I don't give them every opportunity and put them in every extracurricular and make sure that, you know, at every moment they feel affirmed and loved and that I'm failing as a parent. And if they fail as children, it's my fault. And I just feel like that is such a, it's such a culture paradigm thing in, you know, definitely in North America. Um, and, and there's so much pressure to that, that that's where we see like the idea of ignoring your kid or not focusing on them is totally antithetical to how people think about parenting today. But it creates such a tremendous amount of anxiety. Um, you know, that's where I feel like everyone's trying to figure out what's the middle ground here where I can be human and be a person and be relaxed and find a way that this can be growth based and enjoyable. Um, and yet still feel like I'm parenting. Yeah, I mean, it's confusing. And I think that um, uh, if you ask most parents a good question, we should actually ask that the next workshop, you know, how do you define parenting? What What is parenting? What is good parenting? Right. Um, uh, and uh, I think that uh, primarily at the end of the day, I think we all sort of define it based on what we saw growing up. I mean, right. uh, you know, it, 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 it sort of gets into your DNA. Um, and, uh, and that sort of helps us define what we want to do and what we don't want to do. Um, but, uh, I, I can tell you this, uh, my, uh, my industry is at least partially guilty uh, or they're not so innocent for exacerbating the anxiety about, you know, you're doing something wrong and you're messing up your kids because we, we make a very good living off parents being anxious. Now, I don't think it's nefarious. I don't think therapists right. are sitting there thinking. Not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> right. But they're, they're sure as hell not dialing down. Mm. Um, the advice um, and the, uh, you know, um, uh, do this, don't do that sort of prescriptive stuff. Um, mm. And that we have the answer. And if you, if you follow our, our rule book, you know, you, you know, um, this is, the, you know, you will do well by your child. Um, I think also we just have to, you know, um, we have to look culturally at how anxious a culture is. I think the more anxious a culture is, the more 
parents get anxious and the more they, they over or underreact to their kids. So the 1950s, at least let's call it North America and Canada, I don't know what was happening in the rest of the world. You're talking about a post-World War II boom, right? Um, so I don't know, I don't think people were taking, uh, I don't think people were being gauged for anxiety back then. But one could imagine that if you were able, if there were a plethora of jobs, a plethora of food, you know, world population wasn't a huge anxiety. Uh, climate change was, a, you didn't have these, you know, you just finished World War II and you won, right? right. And so there's all these options. And yes, so you can say that the anxiety culturally was very low, okay? And so generally you probably would have less anxious focus on kids at that point. There seems to be a correlation between cultural anxiety and parental anxiety, not surprising, okay? Mm. Um, and, and so this sort of, this is what Murray Bowen talked about. We're not going to go down this path at all, but, you know, his eighth concept called societal regression, how anxi that anxious cultures produce anxious institutions, which produce anxious families. It, it, it's it, when it's everywhere. And, and his. Oh, we his, totally have to do a specific session on that, though. We yeah, that, well, it's a it's big really... one, especially right now. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that my colleagues and I, uh, Lorna Hecht, if you're listening, a shout out to you. Yeah. Uh, one, one of my colleagues uh, in San Diego, another one, uh, Kent Michael um, in Alabama. Uh, one of the things we often talk about, uh, they're in the States. And so they say, you know, what they say is that Murray Bowen was almost prophetic when he came yeah. up with this term in the 1960s about societal regression. He said things were going to get worse. Now, if you were, if you weren't paying attention, you would have thought the dot-com boom and the eighties, you know, that things were getting better, but Bowen saw something else. He saw mm -hmm. something underneath the surface that was problematic. And he said that things are going to get a lot worse over the next, I forget if he said hundred years or 200 years. Well, I don't know how you can't look at what's happening, at least in North America right now. And that's where Bowen worked in North America. I, I don't know if he was saying this globally um, and suggest that what we're seeing right now, what, what your kids, Ellie, especially as teenagers are witnessing and hearing and absorbing and trying to make sense of um, is a calm, uh, you know, a calm principle centered uh, culture right now, because I don't see that at all. I see a very, very, very immature and anxious culture and um, my colleagues in the States, they believe, my supervisor who's in West Virginia believes it's gonna get worse before it get, gets better, which everything they say to him like, like how can it get worse, <laughs> you know? They believe it will. That's what Marie Bowen said, that just like in marriages and in families, it takes a lot to get someone to come to see a therapist. Yeah. Right? It has to get worse before it gets better for, for most people. Right. So there's, our, there's my uh, optimistic uh, tone for the podcast, and uh, now everybody's going to be uh, uh, depressed. But, uh, but, but the point is change does happen, but it takes a, a crucible. It takes a lot of pressure for that to happen. There's going to okay. have to be like more murder hornets to eventually break, break get it to rock bottom. <laughs> yeah. You know, and everybody God. looking for a wise elder. You know, th th thank thankfully that was one of the news items that never really came to fruition um, here anyways. Um, but okay. So I would like to begin, I'm going to throw something out here, okay, right. uh, a story, a little story, a vignette uh, that I experienced in Vancouver that I think relates to um, expanding this idea that Allison's parents just don't love her, mm. okay? I think there's a lot of missing information here, okay? And for parents, um, when I work with parents, I see my job as 
twofold. One is listening to their concern about their focus on their kid, because that's real. You can't dismiss that. But my other job is expanding it beyond the kid. Because if I do my job well, and it expands beyond the kid, then the work goes beyond the kid, which lowers the anxious focus, and the kid will do better in time, even if I never work with the child. Okay, so here's this little story. I moved to Vancouver in 2000, and I didn't have much money, so I had to uh, share uh, a room. I got a house in East Vancouver off of a commercial drive, and my roommate was, I'm going to leave his name out because it's not important, but my roommate was, um, he was this really lovely, um, overweight actor, um, just a great guy um, who had a horrific scar on his face from a car accident, and he's an actor, so that typecast him for just sort of monster roles, because I went to see him a couple of times, and he all his roles were sort of like this sort of character. I mean, and that's all he would get typecast for. Before that, he's a really good looking guy. Right. Um, and uh, and so um, I'm living with him and it was the, it was 2000. So this was, uh, we still had answering machines. And every four or five days, the, the machine would go off beep, and it was his machine. So it was his voice. And it'd be, um, hi, daddy. I'm going to make up a name here. Uh, hi, daddy. It's Jesse. Can you please call me? Beep. And every four days, that answering machine would go off. Daddy, come on, it's Jesse. Please, please call me. Beep. And this would happen. Oh, no. I didn't say anything. I didn't know the guy. I just, I, you know. So one day, I, I went up to him and I said to him, um, I didn't even know you have a daughter. Like, I had no idea you had a daughter. And he's like, yeah, I have a, yeah, you know, I've got, yeah. It's, you know, he didn't really want to talk about it very much. Anyways, as I'm living there, I'd come home every night and he would be, passed out drunk on the living room floor. So this guy was like three, 400 pounds. He would be in the living room, arms out, legs out, out, Ellie, out, almost every night, okay? <laughs> and then in the morning, he'd get up and he was a social service worker. He would do his thing at night, he would act. Um, and this would go on for weeks. Uh, one, so at some point, um, you know, I, I was a little bit more brash and I said to him, I have to tell you something. It kills me listening to your daughter leave these messages. How can you not call this kid back? What he told me was very interesting. Um, we had a conversation once. It was at nighttime. He became very emotional, uh, crying. And, and uh, he was so ashamed of choices he made. Like, clearly, this kid was born out of wedlock. Uh, this was probably a one-night stand. It sounded like something like that. Um, very quickly after, I, would, I, I think the mother left, moved to a different province, um, and was so ashamed by his choices. And also he was struggling with his facial um, disfigurement um, that he, I think that internally he felt it'd be better if he wasn't involved in his daughter's life than if he was. I think that he really, really felt that that he would harm his daughter if he was a, she had no, no idea of any of this kind of stuff. Of she didn't have a clue right. that he was, all she knew that was daddy doesn't call me back. And of course I have no doubt that based on some of the things he told me that mommy was, telling her, you know, that's your father. This is the kind of guy. Uh, so you, you hear this kind of stuff, unfortunately, for kids right. that get caught in the crossfire of, uh, of this stuff. Um, I, I'm sharing this story because, um, you know, uh, on, on the surface, uh, I'm assuming that her friends and her family, the mother, um, saw, you know, my roommate as a bit of a monster. You know, what, what father doesn't call his child, especially when they keep reaching out. And the kid was young, right? right. Um, I saw uh, what I experienced was, a lovely, lovely, very, very wounded man who was trying to make sense of his life after uh, an acute 
situation, a, a, an accident, yeah. uh, a a pregnancy and a birth that was not done in, in, in the in the context of two people saying we want a child um, and uh, really struggling to, to try to, how, how do I integrate this child into my life? Now, I don't know what happened to the Millie. I can't, there's no happy ending here. I don't know what happened because I moved. Right. But I just wanted to share you sort of a bird's eye view and a non-clinical view of some, a background story where this kid probably has no idea about anything that's going on within her Right. father and, and you know and I do hope one day they, they get to sit down maybe when she's older and they can talk about that um, all this to say that um, I think that there is a plethora of information and of course it's a movie we don't know that's going on behind the scenes with Allison that when she leans in for the kiss and the parents take off there could be many reasons and I am all, I would I am willing to wager okay half my bank account that one of those reasons isn't because the parents don't love her Right. So I thought I'd throw that out there. Let's open it up for discussion and uh, go. Thoughts, questions? Yeah, I, I think it's such a, um, you know, it's a heartbreaking, poignant story as a parent to hear, you know, about your your former roommate. You know, for sure, uh, you know, you can imagine the thoughts that a kid like that is having. Kids tend to internalize things anyways. It's usually my fault for whatever's going on. So daddy doesn't love me for whatever reason, I must've done something wrong. And that that's the, you know, thought process that this kid is gonna basically grow up with unless it's countered by the mother or at some point, you know, where he comes to a place where he can just simply communicate to her, you know, I don't feel like the best thing for you and I want the best thing for you would be to have me in your life. And that's not something that, he sounded mature enough to to communicate to her you know so you think about the pain of that situation but of course i think as kids we forget and most of the time don't even realize that our parents are people who you know we're meeting three quarters of the way through the story and are having many experiences that have nothing to do with us as kids um, you know, the only thing we know is that kids usually think it has something to do with them, no, no matter what. So I think that's, you know, it's really heartbreaking, but it's an, op an eye opener to remember that our parents are people and we're having their own experiences. And probably when I think about myself as a parent, a lot of the time, whatever anxiety I'm experiencing, 80% of the time actually has nothing to do with my kids. But because they're there in my environment, you know, they'll sometimes get the brunt of that. And I think that's, you know, that's the pain of it. It's the reality of it. And then the question is, what do you do with it? You know, is that something, you, you know, a lot of the time parents are afraid to tell their kids that they're not okay. You know, then they're going to not trust me or they're not going to feel safe. Or, so what do you do? What do you do when you're in the middle of a really difficult time and you know you're in the same house with your kids. How do you, do we need to protect them or should we be communicating more? So, you know, I think that we're going, we're all going through something right now, okay? Ellie, you take your average parent. I mean, your kids are a little bit older, but even you, I, I, I mean, you feel free to share if this applies to you. You take your average parent right now um, in the spring, maybe not now, but in the spring when the kids were home from school and they're doing homeschooling with Zoom for the first time, okay? At what point of the day where the parents done when when this all broke out right you had 
mom or mom and dad or dad or whoever was home, okay, at what point in the day did mom or dad need a drink or <laughs> a joint or another coffee? At what point? Uh, like 10 a.m.? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, Ellie, I was going to say right around 10. For me, it was about 10 a.m. Right. And what I, what I mean by 10 a.m. was, I mean, I'm done. Right. By 10 a.m., I had nothing left in the tank. I didn't have anything left in the tank for, you know, listening to my middle Sammy saying, uh, daddy, 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 daddy. I, I, I just, I, it was like, it was like a, a World War II torture or something <laughs> to a, be asked a question at 10 a.m. I had nothing left in the tank and I have all of the privilege and all of the riches one could say in terms of support, okay? Right. But by 10 a.m. I was done, okay? Now, do the kids know that? No, okay, they don't, they don't know that, okay? And, and most parents, my hunch is, they um, were probably, there was an internal message that, but I can't be done. And I got to still be operating at a certain level. Right. Um, I can tell you in my office what was happening. You had adults who were trying to perform at the same level of parenting and, um, uh, uh, and work ambition and at their jobs right. that they were doing pre-COVID. And they're trying to, they were, they were done. I, I was working with young people. I'm talking about young people only, not people in their, in their um, <clears throat> excuse me, early forties. And they were, um, they were so done like physically, like they were getting sick physically by, I would say, I don't know, I, I, mid May, right. they were just getting sick. They just couldn't keep it up. Right. So um, I think that um, uh, there is a wildly unrealistic expectation of how much attachment. And I think some of this comes from the attachment world, I think a little bit, um, that's very present in today's culture. Yeah, I think it's also the comparative parenting thing that's out there like on Facebook or Instagram, like I'm doing great. It's so amazing having my kids home all day. This is fantastic. And you know, and that whole, and you're like, oh wow, if they can do it, I should be able to do it too. What's wrong with me? Um, which just makes it worse. Can, can I tell? Can we can we riff on that for one second here? Because I, I got a funny story. It's right a true now. story, by the way. So I have. I, so uh, you know, um, as always, when I share a story on this uh, uh, Zoom call with you, this podcast, um, I change the details. But the the gist is true. Uh, so I'm working with a couple. They're in my office, and uh, they're there because let's say the clergy, a priest, sent them to see me for premarital work. But, but no problems. They're just there to you know, to, to level up a bit before the wedding. Yeah. So in my office and, and, um, and no, sorry, they were married. They were married, uh, first year of marriage. And I asked them how their engagement was. And they both said it was just a beautiful, just a beautiful engagement. They're just so lucky to have met each other. Um, and the wedding was just perfect. Um, and you know, he was saying how lucky he is to have her, his in-laws and she was, and they're going back and forth, they're going back and forth. And then the woman uh, excuses herself. She has to go to the bathroom. She gets up, she goes to the bathroom and he's sitting there. And usually at that point, I don't continue the session because without her there, I don't want to repeat. So I'm just, I, I just, I, uh, I shoot the bleep with him. Right. So I made a very, just a very casual comment. Like, I'm like, you're very lucky. You know, a lot of the couples I work with, they have uh, their engagements are a little more turbulent. He looks at me, his whole tone changes. And he goes, I'm, I'm going to, I'm sorry. You can, can you bleep? He's like, he, he goes, our engagement was a shit show. <laughs> I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, what? you just in front of your wife said it was the most beautiful. He's like, I was in therapy because uh, I, I was convinced that, you know, um, I, I didn't want to marry uh, this woman. Um, 
I think there might have been an affair even. I think that there was an affair or something. Anyways, yeah. a total mess. And he's going on, but yeah. I don't know where she gets this idea from. But I got I, I don't want to upset her because for her it was so perfect. So she comes back into the room. He switches his face. He's back to chipper, chipper, chipper. So here's what I've learned about that encounter, by the way, wow. and many others. But that's just a, that was just for me. It's just so indicative. What people post on Facebook and what they post on Instagram and all that kind of stuff, we are living in a very, very, you know, we mentioned Andy Warhol before, a very sort of pop culture, sort of, you know, uh, uh, a brand yourself kind of a world right. in Facebook right. and Instagram. So when people look at my Facebook page, okay, that is all branding. You know, I don't talk about spending all night in the hospital with my son who has a chronic uh, metabolic issue um, and how scary it is for my wife on and on on Facebook. I don't talk right. about, you know, you know, right. looking for a home and we can't afford a home and how we almost couldn't find a home. Like, that's not sexy. That's not, you right. know, so I leave all that stuff out. My Facebook wall, mine and my Twitter page is a very well constructed message of what I want basically for my business. It's right. what I want people to, which by the way is, is fine. That's what it is. But let's not kid ourselves. Right. Okay. You know, what we're seeing out there is a very well curated uh, image. Um, for sure. And, so yeah. I don't know. I'm sure you've heard this from teens. Like if you're, um, or from parents, like teens, the thing now is you have a Finsta. Right, you have a second Instagram account. Oh, okay. So this is so you have your Instagram account, but then you have a private Instagram account that's just with your friends, where you post all your like stupid pictures and ugly pictures, and you tell the real story, and you know all, of, and it's become an outlet for kids that because otherwise they they just feel fake all the time, curated all the time. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's a really, and I think for parents, um, you know, I do think it's interesting though, that, like I said, like on, on TikTok or on Instagram, a lot of the mommy channels are making fun of themselves and like talking about the crazy craziness of parenting. And a lot of the father channels are the, um, giving advice. It's a really, really different vibe on both of those things. And rarely do you see the two crossing, um, except for there's one called Bat Dad. So if you haven't seen Bat Dad, you have to see Bat Dad. This is a guy that dresses up. He talks in Batman voice every time he disciplines his children and videos it. It's, it's pretty awesome. But I think that, you know, that idea of trying to figure out how to show yourself to the world it just kind of makes everybody else really anxious because most of the time you're like, I'm not doing that. Sure, yeah. I, you know, I'll share with you just a quick thing I'm doing with my clients. I've been doing it now for about a couple of years. It's a very trite exercise, but for most of my clients, they find it brutally hard. And I'm realizing that I, I think there's something here. Um, and so um, I've been using this more and more with my clients. Um, and this is a very simple exercise. It's, it's the exercise of of uh, uh, when my clients say to me, how do I increase my emotional maturity in my life? Or how do I be more differentiated uh, in family systems terminology? Um, and one of the things that I am encouraging my clients to do is answer the question, how are you honestly? So you use how are you as an anchor point. So this would be, this would run against the idea of having two Instagram accounts, okay? This would be a cohesive self, okay? Yep. And you don't need to split it off for branding. Uh, you would think that an exercise like this, right, would be easy. It is very, very hard. I have young men in my office when their fathers call them, 
they are so anxious about appearing that they're doing well in their lives and their careers that even if their company is going bankrupt any day now, when their father's calling and say, how are you doing? Oh, good. No, lots of things are going. It's going. And the dad goes, good, good. It sounds great, son. Yep. And so when I say to them, well, you know, you're having these panic attacks every day. Do you think, do you think that maybe that might be due to the fact that you, you have to wear this, um, this, the pseudo self everywhere that you can't be, you can't be authentic with the people who love you the most. Do you think that might be part of the reason why you're having these panic attacks and they get it. They say, yeah, yeah, I have no authentic relationships. I'm like, well, try it. Next time your dad calls and they say, how are you answer honestly? And you can see it in their face. They get all contorted. Like I, I can't, I can't talk to him that way. Well, I think right? not only with other people, you know, I do this sometimes with, um, um, like with students or with coaching clients, like this idea of asking yourself that question and being able to answer it honestly. Like, how am I? Am I okay? How am I feeling? What's going on? And, and actually knowing and having the skill to be able to turn inward and, and really answer that question. Because a lot of the time we just use, well, I'm anxious. But anxious is usually lots of things. Anxious is worried. Anxious is angry. Anxious is frustrated. Anxious is all of those things. Um, but, and I think that's the, you know, it, I know that in Bowen, you're using that word in a different sense, but I think that people- no, It's use, part of it though. It's right, part of it. Like they use, but I think a lot of people use anxious as just a blanket term to not have to explore more deeply what's really going on. What am I really feeling and where is this coming from and how can I understand this so I can unravel it and be authentic with myself? Because um, if I can't do that with me, there's no way you're going to have a vocabulary to tell that to another person. You're just going to say, oh, I'm anxious or I'm fine. Well, I think that, Ellie, one of the things we, we've talked about before is you've asked me to define this, this idea in the systems world of, of, of how it's broken down to chronic and acute. Yeah. So most people are good with acute anxiety, right? you know, uh, God forbid you go to a doctor and you get bad news and you feel the next day you're depressed and you're sad. You're not, you're not flummoxed about your anxiety. It's right. very like obvious I know why, why I'm feeling this. Right. It's still horrible and you feel horrible, but what happens is, you know, human beings tap into their resiliency and resources. And generally most people then apply all of their energy to trying to get better in some way. The problem that people who come to my office are struggling with is not acute anxiety, although sometimes it could be, it's chronic anxiety. And chronic anxiety is all of the stuff of the what ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? And that's what Murray Bowen called a family of origin issue, unfinished business in the previous generation. So whenever a parent goes, what if my kid doesn't finish math? And then they're not going to university and they're not going to get a job. That's old unfinished business in the family. Now, parents who don't understand this, what they'll, they'll push back and say, no, every parent worries about that. Yeah, sure, they do, but not to the same degree. Not to right, the or same not to the point degree. where you're just pushing your kid beyond their limits and you're telling them not to sleep so much and like, right, it's going to manifest like it crosses a line from and that's where I think we we're talking about this dance. What's the line between, you know, just letting your kids do what needs to be done and, and supervising into pushing them beyond what's possible and but it being you know like we talked about last week is this parenting or is this anxiety and how do you differentiate right um so what ellie actually uh before we get into because i think that that will be an interesting uh discussion about um what's that 
you know, uh, what's the balance that we should be trying to seek for ourselves? Because your balance is different than my balance. Right. Okay. It's not universal for all parents. We all have to figure out what, what that balance is. I do want to just share a couple of thoughts here. This is from uh, uh, 30 years of clinical work. These are just little things I've, I've noticed that could contribute to a parent ignoring or, or the feeling that a parent is ignoring their child. So once again, just to frame this, a teenager is in my office and they say to me, my mother or my father doesn't care about me. Right. And then after maybe four sessions, I'm not talking about years of work, four sessions, here are some of the things I have discovered that's going on behind the scenes that the kid does not know. And we can apply this to Allison. So here's a couple. Number one, mother or father has a chronic illness and they haven't disclosed it to the child yet. Mm. Okay. Or, or mother and father have a chronic illness they're ashamed about or scared mm. that there'll be a hereditary thing. So they don't want to scare their kids so they don't tell them. Let's say, I'm going to make this up here. Let's say a, uh, a parent has severe Crohn's. Right. And they're really worried about the, the generational component. So they don't tell their kids because they don't want to worry about them. But the kid grows up and the parent's always in the bedroom. Right. In bed every, whatever, four or five months. Right. Always distant, kind of says. Yeah, always distant, day. always the right. door closed. You know, maybe mom or dad comes in, leave, leave mommy alone. She's just, she needs space. Right. So that's one that I have seen. Here's another one. Um, this is a, this is something I, I've noticed a couple of times. A father has a beautiful relationship with his little girl. So four, five, six, tickling and playing, hugging and kissing. The minute she hits puberty, the father doesn't know what to do with her. He doesn't want to touch her because he feels it's weird. She also, by the way, is part of the problem because she also feels like, how do I relate to daddy now? Because I don't want him to touch me that way. And then what happens is this distance comes in. She moves towards mom. She gets a lot more distance from dad. And then they have this very cool, distant relationship. And both of them go through their, uh, as she goes through adolescence, mourning. She mourns the father who she can't connect with. And he mourns um, his little girl. I have worked with guys in my office that are in tears when their yeah. daughters at about 10 or 11 don't sit on their lap anymore. Yeah. And they realize that day will never come back again. Okay. Yeah. So now if that isn't communicated, all the, 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 the daughter feels is that, you know, daddy once loved me, he no longer loves me or there's right. something wrong with me. Yep. Okay. So that's one. Here's another one. The family business is in turmoil. So any sort of major financial stuff that's causing so much anxiety, the parents don't want to share anything with the kids. They want to make, keep everything calm. They're always at work. They're always worried about something could contribute to this, um, to this distance, something I've seen. Um, something else. This I see a lot, by the way. So, okay. So you're, um, you're uh, an eight-year-old eldest. Okay. Um, no siblings. You have all the attention in the world is focused on you. And then your sibling is born. You're eight. It's been eight years. Maybe parents are on IVF. Maybe there's a couple of miscarriages, whatever the case may be. And now finally your parents have a baby and they are thrilled, but there's some complications right. and all of the resources and all, and you're fine. And you know, they know you're fine. So they don't worry about you. But all of a sudden, all that attention for eight years that was focused on you, my darling eldest child, is now focused on this other kid. Okay. That's a recipe for this, the eldest feeling like something went wrong. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm ignored. I, um, my parents don't love me or they, or, or, or they love my sibling more. Right. Or I'm not a miracle. Baby. Right. Right. Um, another one I've seen is, uh, this happens for mothers. And this is uh, gender neutral. Um, I've seen this with mothers though, in particular, where the, a mother who is very vain about her looks. So she, she's got a lot of attention because of her looks. Mm -hmm. She has a daughter 
and she, you know, she shows off her daughter and she gets a lot of prey because the daughter's so cute, six, seven. Once the daughter hits 14, 15 and is now sexy and beautiful, and all of a sudden the attention goes more towards her daughter than her. Mm-hmm. I have seen things flip in a very sort of dark and sort of psychoanalytic way. Right. Now the mother resents her kid, but she resents getting older and losing the power that she sustained her sense of self for so long. Right. The kid doesn't know what's going on. She, she doesn't understand what's happening because right. for all, all my life it was me and mommy just walking around. This happens with uh, sons and fathers too. Um, it, it, it really is gender neutral, but it is a very powerful force that the kid only knows that where did mommy and daddy go? <laughs> we were hanging out, we we're doing all this great stuff. They're gone. And actually, I don't even think they like me, which in a right. way- Like once there was a relationship and now there's none. So right. what happened in the story? And that's that, you know, this idea of like, you know, that kind of longing for the good old days, you know, it starts, you know, very early. And I, I think you're right. And most kids don't have the inside scoop as to what is going on in their parents' world until so much later. And often not even then, like, you know, my parents for certain things said, you know, when you were old enough to ask, that's when we would tell you. And, right. and for me, that was liberating because when I did ask, they did tell me. Right. And then it, it helped put so many pieces into place for me to understand my experience versus what was also going on in, in the house. It was a, a huge thing to finally understand what the other part of the story was. Yeah, I, I have to say, Ali, I think that um, while I'd like to think that that's happening more often than not, I, I actually don't think that's true. I think that most people grow up with their with their family as sort of like a cardboard cutout. Um, what do you call that? Uh, like two dimensional. Like they don't really understand all the. They they make their assumptions, and so you have. I have people in my office in their forties and fifties. You know, they talk about their parents as if they're all cartoon characters. That these, yeah. these are not real people they're talking about, right. and they make assumptions based on very little information about who these people were. So I'm not so sure. So sure that's happening. Um, in a lot of families. Um, the final thing that <clears throat> that um, uh, I think that is very common, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, in my practice is when kids are caught in a marital triangle. Mm. So you have mom and dad, they're, they're, they're fighting about something and they can't resolve it. So, so dad takes that energy and focuses on their child. And so they get, so the, and the child feels great. Maybe even the dad talks about mom to their child, you know, ah, you're a mother and the, and the kid feels, fantastic because daddy's talking to me but in the process is now distanced from their mother right because of that connection and so they're caught in this triangle um and that that can go on for, for a long long time so all of these things and i can go on and on but all of these things are examples of information that john hughes uh obviously wouldn't include in a movie like this right. that might be contributing to that car leaving and it breaks your heart but, but as Murray Bowen says, you got to be very, Ellie, this is so important because of the word empathy. Empathy is a big word right now. If we can only empathize more with Allison, she'll right. do better. No, <laughs> no, she won't do better right. because she doesn't know the, what's going on. This is what's so maddening about this idea that we can all get out of this, all of our, if we just had more empathy, more, if, if Allison goes to see a therapist who's too empathic, the therapist will cry with her maybe and say, oh, what a horrible... I will be the parent replacement. I will be the surrogate parent you never had. Right. I know therapists who do this, by the way, and they make a good living, okay? Who right. act as surrogates for the parents. What Allison needs is, should she ever get this in Breakfast Club 2, okay? 
would be an, uh, the maturity to, to get to know her family factually, factually about what is going on behind the scenes that has led to whatever the hell is going on here. And I guarantee you it falls into one of the eight, eight or nine categories that I put down here. The one that it won't be is that, oh, you know, mommy and daddy had you, we just, we didn't love you. We never loved you. Right. And I think that's so interesting because you really see so much of her behavior. You, you see that she's still in this very immature space with herself and with her feelings and with how she's trying to navigate this, that she's not thinking beyond herself, that this experience of being ignored could have something to do with whatever's going on with her parents. And she's doing everything in her power to try to get attention. Right. You know, she's biting her nails so loud that everyone can hear her. She's making a sandwich with like cereal and white bread and like sugar, you know, like she's everything that she does in that entire thing up to when she finally admits in the movie that she came in for detention because she has nothing better to do that day is all about trying somehow to get this attention that she's not getting at home. But none of her focus is on, and you never hear her say, well, my dad is sick, or my mother lost her job, or I have, you know, a sibling that's not well, like, there's no other information, which, in terms of her character means she's still completely focused on herself. Now, Ellie, this is the reason why, and you've read this, this is the reason why my latest book, David Freeman, is the, the late David Freeman, was adamant about not bringing kids into therapy for too long mm. because all you're going to get is an Allison sitting there and you know reading telling the therapist about how horrible things are right. without any context not because she's by the way not because Allison is mean right. not because she's stupid Allison is clearly quite bright at least in the breakfast right. club because she doesn't know the score she doesn't know the backdrop. It's one of the reasons why David said any therapist working with teenagers should always start with the parents for at least the first few sessions to get a historical understanding of why is the symptom happening now? Why is your kid cutting? Why is your kid depressed? Why is your kid doing too much drugs? Why are they not going to school? You don't understand that until you understand the dynamics in right. the system. Right. So what and you're a saying, teenager yeah. is generally too emotionally immature to be able to give any other perspective than their own. They shouldn't have it. You know, right. it's crazy. It's, it's it's so crazy. And I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to say any names, but you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, right now with climate change, you know, all the adults are pointing to some teenager. Right. As, as we say, you're some pisher, you know, oh, she's the great savior. She's a kid. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Look, I'm going to, I'll own this for myself. I did so many stupid things when I was, I did, never mind a teenager in my twenties. Okay. That in retrospect, in retrospect, Okay, I understand that I was just, I, I, I didn't want to say stupid, I was a kid. I didn't have the wisdom. I didn't have the understanding of how the world works. And I had lots of opinions and thoughts and I did things that was just plain dumb, but not dumb for a teenager. It'd be dumb for a 52 year old man, but it wasn't dumb then. Yeah, right? and the positives of that is teenagers need that chutzpah, that immortality experience to try new things, to grow out of certain things. It's like, it's a very healthy thing to be able to yell, you know, to speak truth to power with no fear and no understanding of what possible consequences could be. It's a powerful thing and it's passionate and it's good, but you can't, you have to eventually understand for deep, meaningful change to happen. It can't just be screaming truth to power. 
Yeah, and I mean, look, you know, if if I was speaking to your daughter, Yakira, she's what, 12, 13? Uh, 14. And I, uh, 14? <laughs> yeah. She's 14, even better. And I said to her something like, uh, Yakira, if you can change one thing about uh, the synagogue or whatever, you know, and she told me, I would be curious to hear what she had to say because she probably would have very interesting things to say. Right. Okay. But I wouldn't change the whole synagogue on it. <laughs> like, I mean, right. I would listen to her. It would be interesting. But you got to take what young people say with a certain grain of salt, or at least within the context of, you know, and by the way, some of the teenagers that I'm most weary about are the real precocious ones, the ones who are way too mature for their own good, because they haven't lived enough life to cultivate the wisdom for context and for subtlety. Okay. Right. It's like, you know, the wisdom you should be wary of is someone who like, thinks they know everything but they like don't you know what i mean it's like it, and by the way i would which say this is why is jewishly like humility is really the foundational idea of wisdom like the beginning of wisdom is the fear of hashem like this idea that in order to know everything you have to know you don't know everything and that's you know, one of my uh my supervisor will often say to me sometimes if i'm getting really stuck with a client like a really complex case and i'll say to her um, and we're going around and like, you know, she's, she's, she's asking me questions and, and I'll say to her, uh, I'll say something like, um, Catherine, can you throw me a bone here and just tell me like this? And she'll say, I don't know. Great. And, and she doesn't do it in an anxious way. You know, she's been right. doing this gig for a long time. And I think her general message to me sometimes with these families is see how it plays out. See what you can learn. Right. Watch how this plays out. See, see what information you can learn from this. That takes wisdom. I think it, I think it's an anxious youthfulness, which is the answer is this, right? That's what you got to do. That's what the thing is. And so I, I'm, I'm always weary. I think what, what's the line, Ellie? It's a great line. If you see Buddha on the road, kill him. It's not, right. it's not a line from a book. Right. It was yeah, a line I from a book. About, that's wrong. Yeah. yeah. If you see, if you see a Buddha on the road, kill him or something. Um, and that anybody who's a guru, anybody has all the answers. I would be very, very weary about, about any of that kind of stuff. Chances are that's just a, a very, an anxious response to a complex um, situation. But anyway, so th those are my, um, those are my points. Um, where do you want to go from here? Um, yeah. So I think, so how do we as parents, like if we're thinking about the point of view of parents, how do we address then? What's that fine line between needing to focus on ourselves and deal with whatever serious real events are going on that might be drawing our attention away from our children? Um, you know, how, how do you know what to communicate? And how do you know when to just be like, it's okay, they'll be fine. Like, I don't need to focus on them so much right now. How do you tone down that anxiety? And how do you know when it's crossed a line into, oh no, I'm actually, I actually am ignoring my kids at this point. Yeah. So what I'll do, Ellie, is I'll just give an example of, for, for my life, how I sort of do this. And maybe you can extrapolate from that generally about um, how, uh, you know, the general principle around this. So the general idea here that we've been talking about is, um, moving the anxious focus away from the child and more onto the leader. Okay, so you're moving the focus away from your child and more onto the leader to give you the space to answer the question, what is the best response for my kid, ages and stages, mm. different for a three-year-old, for a 13-year-old and a 21-year-old, um, to give yourself enough space to be able to conjure up whatever wisdom you have within, okay, to be able to answer that question. Now life comes at you pretty fast, so it, it's it's tricky to do. But this is how it, it works for me. So this is a true uh, a true situation. 
um, a couple of nights ago, uh, my eldest, who is 10 and he's in grade five, um, said to me, uh, what did he say to me? He said to me, um, he's really anxious because he's falling behind in some of his homework. And my immediate response is just anxiety surge. I'm thinking, <laughs> so my first thoughts are, how did I drop the ball as a parent and let it get this far? Okay. My second thought is, my wife's going to get mad at me because somehow I'm responsible for it. It all became about me and about how I somehow dropped the ball. I'm too focused on the move. I'm too focused on work. I'm too focused on my sketches. I, I somehow haven't done something for him. So all of that stuff I have come to appreciate now as old family of origin issues. This is not real. My child wasn't doing that to me. That was all, uh, you can call it um, uh, uh, under the surface stuff that I carry around with me. The minute that I can recognize that, I have a choice. I don't have to react to that. So now it's taken work to get to that point. Most of the families I work with, they, they, don't, even, they don't recognize the difference between what's happening in the moment and what's bubbling up. So the first thing I ask myself is, where's all this coming from? And where it's coming from is very similar encounters I had with my mom and my dad when I had homework. It was very, very similar, okay? Homework was not fun in my house when I was growing up as a kid. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and here's a question that I ask myself often is, whose problem is this? It's a question I've, I, I have cultivated over the years and I ask myself, whose problem is this? So my kid comes home and says he's falling behind in work. Well, whose problem is that? Well, re realistically, that's not my problem. It's not my problem that my kid is falling behind in work. Now, if I didn't so pay that for that in itself would be revolutionary for many parents to be able to answer that question in that way. I would say why, most why would you, parents, why, why would you think it's revolutionary? All the way up to high school at this point would say, if my child is falling behind in, your, in their work, it's my responsibility as a parent to make sure that they get caught up. And in fact, oh. I would say most schools uh, push that. Right. You should be doing like you shouldn't be doing your kids homework, but you should be making sure that they're getting their homework done. Like, I think that that is a very blurry line for parents. Homework is a like I can't tell you how many people in, in surveys I've sent out for what programs I should run and what we should talk about. How many parents have said homework? Yeah. Well, Ellie, I mean, I think that uh, and we're not going to go too far down this, but you and I have talked about this before. There is a reason why on campus right now data after data, research after research, clinical vignette after clinical vignette, people are saying that kids are more anxious at university right now than ever before. And it's not because we're diagnosing more. The, the clinicians who've been there for uh, three or four decades are saying that the kids are so anxious. They haven't seen this degree of panic attacks and anxiety attacks and mental health days ever before mm -hmm. because kids are so um, uh, primed, uh, primed, uh, to be anxiously focused on in high school, to have the supports and the propping right. up and, and all the right. scaffolding. Once they're left on their own, they crumble. And then also what's happening is parents are coming to university and getting involved with professors and deans and, and this sort of thing. So, you know, uh, this whole, whole idea we talked before about societal regression, that there's a lot of anxiety in society, it manifests itself in different ways. I, I would argue that this is one of the ways. When a parent of a 15-year-old feels it's their responsibility that their kid is falling behind, that is an anxious and inappropriate response to the role of helping your 15 year old cultivate the skills to become a young adult and leave home physically and emotionally. Right. That is, the, now, by the way, I'm open to people pushing back on this. Maybe some parents think, no, that's not my role. My role is to be their mummy right until they're 55. Right. I want to be their mummy. Right. What is that uh, book, the, that weird, terrifying book, Love You Forever? 
Right, right. Or, or really, if you really, if you want to see, I know this guy's a controversial figure, but if you want to see the best example of this, um, in Martin Scorsese's, um, I think it was Scorsese who did a, a three-part mini uh, series about New York, three films about New York. Mm. Woody Allen's version of a mother who's in the sky. She's like God. She's in the sky, and she's always fetching to him. He's a grown man of like forty-five, <laughs> and and everybody on the street is listening, and she's like, "Did you brush your teeth?" It's like, mom, mom, everybody hears you in New York. So that idea of a parent who's always hovering and telling right. you what to do, right? Um, and so, uh, so okay, so number one, um, the first thing that I try to do is recognize when I get anxious when my kids tell me something, is this about them or is this about me, okay? Once I know it's about me, okay? Now, by the way, if my kid came home and he was missing three teeth and he was bleeding out of his nose, right? Right. Then we're um, in a, then we're it's in a different situation. it's a different situation exactly. <laughs> uh, by the way, by the way, but Ellie, if my kid is twenty six, right, and gets into a car accident and then comes home and I'm a lawyer and says, "Daddy, you better sue this guy. You better sue this guy." Okay, that's also different. You right. see, it, it's it's about ages and stages and about agency. Okay. And so, um, so number one, uh, where's the anxiety coming from? Uh, where's the family of origin piece? Number two, whose problem is it? Now, I do believe that my kid, I would say, I would say probably, um, I'm going to pick an age here, six and up. Six and up, kids have to start taking responsibility for their homework. That doesn't mean that I, what's, so what's my responsibility? My responsibility is to pay the electricity so the lights are on. The <laughs> that's my responsibility. No, right. no, really. I mean, that's our, my responsibility is to make sure my kid is not hungry in my home, to get them food so that they, that they can eat, so they can sit down and do their homework. My responsibility is to make sure there's furniture. My responsibility is to get a tutor, if that's part. I do have a responsibility but my orientation is giving them the responsibility to take care of what's theirs and what is yeah. not mine. Right. Okay. This doesn't mean that my wife, for example, has a math background. That's before she went to medicine. She, she was in math. She might be of a great assistance to my kids. She might also be the wrong person because she might get too anxious because she loves my kids. Maybe a math tutor would be better. Right. So again, what's the family of origin piece? Whose problem is it? And the third piece is when you can define that problem, and this is something I would speak to, especially someone like Yakira's age. If Yakira has a problem, right? Whatever the problem is, and you say to her, okay, what's the problem? You define the problem. My question to Yakira would sound something like, what do you want me to do about it? And so she says to me, I, I want you to go and beat up that girl who's 13. I want you to go beat her up, mom, okay? Now, I know some parents will get into the car. <laughs> Ellie, I do. <laughs> They will right. get into the car. Or call the like, call the girl's mother and have it out with them. Like have a whole. Series. That's 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 right. right. You know, I, I think it's I, what I tell parents often is that when when you when you ask your child what do you want me to do, you have a choice in what they say. It doesn't mean you do it. <laughs> so if your kid says, "Well, what I would," you know, what would help with this? Fifteen thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, you can say, "Time out. Let me speak. Let me think about this. And I'll get back to you." Right. Okay, so I, I think that and at that point, what you're helping your child do throughout this process is you're, you're, fo you're keeping the focus on yourself so you're not projecting your anxiety onto your kid. And at the same time, you're coaching your child to lick their own wounds and their boo-boos. And that at times, at times, you might be the right person to help and at times you're not. And I think that's an excellent time to say to your kid, ages and stages, you know, I'm actually not the best person for this. But together, we'll come up with something that someone that's a better person um, for this thing, okay? Um, 
The ignoring part when it's done maturely, okay? So coming back to Allison, you know, this idea of, is there a way to actually ignore your kids that's mature? No, I think ignoring sounds like an anxious response. That's my point, Elliot Bow technique. I think that we have to be careful here. I'm not suggesting ignore your kids. What I am suggesting is, it is a parent's responsibility to slowly give your kids space, especially at Allison's mm -hmm. age, to slowly give your kids space to make their own decisions, but to stay emotionally connected with them. So someone like Allison, for example, you know, do you, can you go for a walk with your kid every now and then? Do you go into their bedroom and ask them about the poster on the wall, even though you couldn't care about their music, but can you, can right. you call, cultivate the curiosity to ask them about their culture and their life? Right. Do you have, do you have the confidence to be able to sit down with your kid and share about your life, even though you know it might be something anxious? Okay. So those are some of my thoughts about how do you how do you strike the balance of being connected to your kids, but also giving them the space to become their own person and physically and emotionally leave home. I love it. I think that's such a great place to start, like becoming the stability that they know is there, but they don't need to function. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, okay. great stuff. Wow. All right. Next. So next time we have, um, who, who's left? Is it Bender and Brian? Yeah. Yeah. Who, who do you want to do first? Do I mean, I Bender's like ending on Bender is so good because you just like, he's the last one you see in the movie with the arm up. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. So we'll do Brian. We'll do okay, Brian so next Brian's time. next week. All right. Amazing. Okay. Which by the way, just that you mean, you might want to put a warning because I think if we're going to talk about Brian, if we're going to talk about Brian, we're the, the topic of, of um, suicide and self-harm is going to come up. So there's no way to get around that. If we're touching on Brian, it's going to come up. So I don't know how you want to do a, a trigger yep. warning or something, but that'll come Make up. Sure okay. People know. Okay. That's okay. amazing. Thanks, Avram. Right. Have a good week. <laughs> Thanks. You too.